the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello and welcome to the Situation Report. Today, this is the show where we do our very best to give you the information and perspectives you need to navigate an ever-changing culture. My name is Jeremy Stoniker, here with Chad Robichaux. And we have a guest on today that can really help us gain the right perspective. We talk about perspectives. Uh, can really help us gain the right perspectives, uh, not only on what is happening in America right now, and there's so much happening, but what has happened. And uniquely, he has a perspective on what he believes will happen. And we have the opportunity to look at that. I think for many of us, there can be, if we're not careful, a hopelessness that sets in on us. We look at all of the things that are happening, and, and we just, we're not super hopeful about the future. Our guest is hopeful about the future, and he knows of what he speaks. He's been through uh, really a lot of this already and has dissected and thought about and written about and talked about these issues. And so grateful that he would come on with us today. Our guest today is Steve Cortez. Steve is a political commentator and heads Rise Strategies, a media messaging and public affairs company. He served as the 2016 primary TV surrogate for the Trump presidential campaign and was later named to Trump's Hispanic Advisory Council. He has worked on Wall Street. He has done just about everything. He's been all over the news and uh, very glad to have him with us. Uh, one of the things that I appreciate about Steve is that he has a very real perspective of what's happening but also has a positive uh, outlook on the future of our country, which many do not. So, Steve, thank you. Uh, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate your time and, and working with us on a few technical issues that we've had today. Not a problem. Jeremy, Chad, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Let's, uh, let's just start by um, maybe give us some of your story. Tell us, you know, kind of how you, we, we know kind of where you started. We look back to 2016 and, and some of the work that you did prior to that. But how did you get involved in this work? How did your path bring you to what you're doing today? Sure. Happy to, to talk about that. And I am still a relative newcomer to the world of politics. I really got into it with Donald Trump. I'm not new to media or TV. Right. My previous life on Wall Street uh, got me into television and into broadcasting. So I spent 25 years on Wall Street as a trader and broker for some of the biggest hedge funds in the world. Uh, and my career in financial markets, I hope, has been uh, really key in preparing me for this new career in politics and media. But that, that Wall Street career got me onto television, but not talking about stocks, excuse me, not talking about, um, uh, talking about, uh, politics or policies, right. but instead talking about stocks and currencies and tickers. Uh, and CNBC is where I really got my start. Uh, a lot of folks out there might know the show Fast Money, which is on every yep. day. There's a midday show, Halftime Fast Money, at yep. noon Eastern time, and then the, the wrap-up show at 5 p.m. Eastern. I was a regular on Fast Money for seven years, and so that's where I got my start in television. I had hopped over, though, to Fox News with the intention of mainly being on Fox Business to continue talking about markets primarily. But one of the reasons, and this is in 2015, one of the reasons I went over there is I wanted to at least have the freedom to talk politics. And the little bit that I tried to talk politics and policy on CNBC, because I was very right-wing, um, I was yeah. met with a lot of opposition, as you can imagine, right, from a network sure. in the NBC family. So I went over to Fox so that I would at least have that freedom. But the plan was still to primarily 
cover business, Jeremy. And, uh, you know, sometimes uh, the best made plans in life uh, lead you to an unexpected place. And that's exactly what yeah. happened when Donald Trump came down that escalator. I was a critic at first. I was a skeptic. He very quickly won me over uh, before the New Hampshire primary. And I started saying so very publicly on Fox News, started advocating for his policies and for his candidacy, not expecting in any way that it was going to get me into politics, just as a concerned American with, you know, a platform. And yeah. they, uh, yeah. he got a hold of me and said, you know, Cortez, it seems like we've won you over. We need you. You've got TV skills. Wouldn't hurt to have a Hispanic on board. And uh, all of that led to me then leaving Fox News, much to the chagrin of my wife. I left a very good paying gig to go and volunteer for this sure. campaign, for the Trump sure. campaign, which at that time, let's be honest, early on still looked like an incredible long shot effort. Uh, but, you know, lo and behold, a lot of us, you know, most of all Donald Trump himself, of course, but a lot of us pitched in and really brought what was already an existing movement, this America First movement, even though it wasn't really named that yet. You know, whether you want to call it the Tea Party movement or populist nationalism, the movement, of course, was already brewing and already starting to find momentum. But it really found its its candidacy uh, in terms of a national ascendancy in Donald Trump. And so a lot of us worked incredibly hard throughout 2016. My real specialty was taking on those adversarial interviews. So I primarily got the MSNBC, the CNN yeah. interviews, the regular broadcast networks, ABC, NBC, CBS. Yeah. And I became really a specialist at being able to take on the adversarial press. And, uh, you know, I did so with, with uh, I, you know, I hope a lot of skill. And I certainly did so with a lot of fervor for the cause. Right. And then once Donald Trump won, I ended up leaving Wall Street entirely. And now all I do is media and politics. I joined the campaign again in 2020 and was a senior advisor for strategy to the campaign. I focused a lot during that campaign on really two buckets. I was primarily the economy, given my Wall Street background, and right. then the other side was uh, outreach to Hispanics, an area where we did incredibly well in 2020. We did pretty well in 2016, surprised a lot of folks. We did massively better than anybody thought we could in 2020. And um, I am still at least unofficially you know, affiliated with the president. Uh, when I say the president, I mean Trump, of course. Right. And looking forward to 2024, what I expect and believe that yep. he is going to run again. And if he does, and if he so honors me, I will be glad to help him win. As I tell him, uh, you know, only half jokingly, I will help him win a third time. And it will be a three-peat <laughs> for Donald Trump in 2024. Steve, one of, one of the things you said that uh, really caught my attention is that he won you over with policy in, in 2016. And, and that was the same with me. I mean, I, when he was first running, you know, Jeremy and I were talking about this. And I'm like, I, I didn't take him seriously. Uh, and I think a lot of people didn't, uh, in, in, you know, especially early on when he first announced and started running. And uh, he won me over with policy. I was able to speak to him at a, at a town hall in 2016 and ask him. I was one of a few veterans that were able to ask ask him a question on veterans policy. He gave me a very suffice answer. Uh, and his policies what won me over. I championed him in 2016, ended up being a surrogate veterans policy surrogate in 2020 on the campaign. And again, I would I would help him win a, the third term as well on veterans, but based on policy alone. And so many of the Trump opposition has came to say that people are just on a Trump train and they're kind of like Trump loyalists. But what I've, what I've learned uh, through the years is that people weren't just infatuated with this man but the policies he represents and, and right. puts forward and, and America first policies, just common sense policies and policies that benefit seemingly to me, every American is, have you seen that as well in the campaign? Just uh, people getting on board 
Not because of pres- not because of the man Donald Trump, but because of his policies. No, absolutely, Chad, and that's uh, you know I'm glad to hear that by the way that you were also won over that you uh, you speak with the zeal of a convert now you know the way I do it. I guess I it's almost hard to call myself a convert because now it's my entire life is pushing for right. this America First agenda. And by the way, I think that's important. And listen, as much as I admire Donald Trump, and I do believe that he is the undisputed leader of the America First movement, um, it is a movement that preceded him. It is a movement that is going to go on after him. Now I hope that's after another second term. Term that starts in twenty in January of twenty twenty five for Donald Trump, but uh, you know when people will sometimes my critics, for example, will assail me that I'm just you know a Trump sycophant. You know again, I have enormous admiration for the man, but this movement is about much more than Donald Trump, and he would be the first to say that, even as important as he is to the movement. In terms of the policy, Chad, where he won me over specifically as a Wall Street guy is I had been basically a Wall Street establishment Republican. I was certainly conservative, uh, particularly on social issues, but when it came to the economy. I kind of believed in that, not kind of, I did believe in the quote, free trade mantra. Donald Trump came along and he convinced me that I was wrong. And I was wrong. He convinced me that it really, we never had free trade. It was always managed. And it was managed against the interests of American workers, in the interest of the Chinese Communist Party and multinational American corporations and the American ruling class, C-suite executives in the United States. He opened my eyes to that. Um, and once he did, as I said, I spoke with the zeal of a convert after that, and I've, and I've made a, a complete 180 regarding economic policy, and I consider myself to be very much of an economic populist nationalist now. And it was Donald Trump, you know, of all people, one of the most unlikely people. It wasn't Milton Friedman, <laughs> who I happen to admire as well, you know, from a policy perspective, but it wasn't, it wasn't an economist. Um, it was this, you know, sort of almost movie star figure, but a man also who was an entrepreneur and a man who saw that America was being ripped off and that particularly American workers, blue collar folks out there, working class Americans. And, and he won me over. And I've certainly seen, yes, that story, your story, my story replicated um, many, many times. I'll give you an example that I think is powerful. And it was something that I was honored to experience firsthand in both campaigns, but especially in 2020 are how many uh, police officers out there came around to Donald Trump who were historically right. Democrats. I'm right. talking about a lot of big city cops, a lot of them minorities, a lot of them blacks and Hispanics. And I can't tell you how many of them, when we would travel and go to rallies, uh, number one, just the adulation for Donald Trump. It was very clear. I mean, they were there to do their job and to provide security, but it was also clear that they were very pleased to be there. They were thrilled to be there and thrilled when they would get the chance to meet uh, President Trump. And he would always do that, by the way. When a rally was done, there would almost be, in a way, a second rally backstage with law enforcement where he would take pictures and high fives. <laughs> and it was a ton of fun. But a lot of them, traditional Democrats, many, many of them, you know, they're generally, particularly in the cities, they're generally union people, uh, mo- you know, mostly fraternal order police. Uh, by the way, Trump got those union endorsements. And, uh, and a lot of them from, from families with a history of voting for the Democratic Party. They came over because they saw, for them, it wasn't so much the economic issues like it was for me, although that was part of it. For them, it was more about law and order and the disrespect that the modern Democratic Party shows toward law enforcement. You know, the Democratic Party today, I, I'd like to think there's two reasons that the America First movement is surging. First, I think, is because of our ideas. And, and I do think we're surging, by the way, even though right now I know it's, it's easy to be despondent about what's going on in Washington. But I think it's a surging and still young movement. But I think we're surging because of our ideas, and that's the primary reason. But we're also surging because the Democrats and the left, they're doing us a lot of favors because this Democratic Party is so hostile 
available to any American who has in any sense traditional or patriotic values, who believes in yeah. law and order, yeah. uh, who believes in the ideals of, of capitalism, uh, who believes in, in <laughs> traditional Christian values. I mean, th- those people are simply no longer welcome right. in the Democratic Party. This is yeah. not your parents yeah. or grandparents' Democratic Party. So that combination of them being pushed out plus the America First movement offering a positive attraction, uh, those are some of the reasons why, and things are dark in America right now, and I'm not Pollyanna at all about that. They're very dark, particularly economically. Uh, however, I also believe, politically speaking, when I look into the future, that this young America First movement uh, is just getting started and is going to dominate politics in this country for decades. But now, you've all heard me talk about my pillow, and now Mike has just announced that our customers will receive one of his books, What Are the Odds, from Crack Addict to CEO, absolutely free with any purchase using our promo code. It's a great time to buy his warm and wonderful My Slippers. I have a pair myself. I have the moccasins. I wear them all day long, inside and outside. In fact, I wear them probably too much outside, so I'm going to get a second pair for myself. Uh, when you walk on the, the My Pillow foam in the Impact Gel, it, uh, it keeps your feet from getting fatigued from walking around all day. feels like you're walking on these kind of cushioned air pockets. I, I absolutely love them. Uh, they're made with quality leather suede. And again, I'm going to get a second pair for myself and buying pairs uh, for my family as well. And for a limited time, Mike is offering 50% off his My Slippers for you. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listeners Square and use promo code SIDREP. You also get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including some overstock products such as individual towels, blankets, comforters, and so much more. Call 1-800-870-0283 and use promo code SIDREP. Steve, you, you uh, speak on a lot of different topics, and as you travel, you speak on some specific topics. One of the topics that you, you speak on is um, what you call, and correct me if I'm wrong, the second American century. And looking down the road, you um, uh, assert that as difficult as things are, as black as things are, as you just mentioned, that really there are actual reasons to have hope for the future of America. And (laughs) we interview a lot of folks. We talk to a lot of people. We all follow uh, pundits probably on both sides of the aisle. And regardless of where you sit, there's not a lot of hope. But you give some, some very specific things, what you call the six powerful macro forces. Uh, can you talk about some of the reasons that you would say concretely, this is why I believe America has a bright future in, in spite of where we are right now? Sure. No, and again, I, I'm not in any sense diminishing the, the hurdles, the troubles that we face right now. Of course, right yeah, now, of course. You know, and, those of course. Are, and those are largely, uh, not largely, they are entirely created by policy blunders of right. Joe Biden. But... Here's the reasons to be optimistic. You know, first of all, I'll give you one that's more domestically focused and then, you know, sort of looking at the world. But uh, in terms of, you know, to be domestically focused, again, this populist nationalist movement, I think sometimes it's hard for us to have perspective because we're right in the middle of it, right? And when you're yeah. in the middle of anything yeah. that's tumultuous, it's difficult to have historical perspective. But, you know, this is a movement that is just getting started. For example, we still have the growing pains of taking over the establishment Republican Party. Now, that has largely been accomplished at the voter level. If you, if you, if you uh, poll voters, if you talk to voters right now, the Republican Party has become a workers' America First party. 
But at the office holder level, clearly that job is not complete there. There are still a lot of legacy office holders. I'm talking about people like Mitch McConnell and sure. uh, Adam yeah, Kinzinger, sure. uh, a lot of people who are, you know, in power in terms of Mitch McConnell, still in incredibly powerful positions who clearly yeah. do not believe in the America First movement, but mm -hmm. right now occupy the same party that we do. So let's remember, though, that the movement is incredibly young. You know, in many ways, Donald Trump was sort of a landing on the beach. Now the army is really starting to roll in. Right. And that's a process right. that's going to take several elections, not just one or two. Um, I think that in 2022, we're going to see, in my view, really a sea change where we don't just take over the House and hopefully the Senate with a Republican majority, not just people who have an R after their name, but America first people, people who actually really believe um, in things like protecting America. I, I'm not afraid of the word protectionism, by the way. I'm a proud protectionist. I believe in protecting America literally in terms of our borders. I also believe in protecting America economically uh, through tariffs and through policies that will deter offshoring and that will demand onshoring of processes back to the United States. So politically, when I look domestically at the United States, I think as, as problematic as things are right now, there are really good reasons for us to be optimistic. And then when I look at the world stage, if I take a really macro view, and that's a lot of what I did on Wall Street, was macro investing and on a global basis. A lot of my uh, hedge fund clients were overseas, primarily in Europe. And uh, these are you know massive and incredibly sophisticated people and institutions that can literally deploy their money uh, mm. instantaneously anywhere in the world. And it was my yeah. job to decide where they should be deploying their money. Mm. And, um, and I was of the view then when I worked on Wall Street, and I still am now, that China, as problematic as China is for the United States, and as much trouble as, as we have allowed them to cause for the United States, China has systemic problems that are going to prevent it from becoming the superpower in a lasting way that everybody assumes it's going to be. And I'll give you one good example, which is yeah. demography. Uh, what they have done in China, and I really believe demography is destiny for countries over the long scope of history. And when you look at what China has done because of its one-child policy, it was not just morally repugnant uh, to literally manage people's reproductive lives and to, in many cases, coerce or even force abortions on a mass scale. It wasn't just morally wrong. It was also economically devastating to the country long term because they now have a country that has already they have a population problem. Only it's not the one that people talked about for decades. Right, it's the right, opposite. Right. They are going to yep. very soon have too few people. And uh, by the way, U.S. population growth is also slowing down. So I'm not I'm not, uh, uh, you know, immune to those issues here in the U.S. And I understand that and that is problematic. And I've written actually quite a bit lately in my commentaries about how we need to restart American population growth. I think we should borrow a lot of the tactics that Hungary, for example, is using right now. But when I look at the, the world's uh, competitors, if you were, for superpower status, I still believe that the United States is just a, sort of assumed among you know conventional thinkers and the so-called uh, experts out there. It's really just assumed that uh, the 1900s, the 20th century was the American century, and that this is going to be the Asian century, the Chinese century. It's a century of American decline. I do not at all accept that as inevitable. You know, I believe in human agency. I yep. believe in human action. And I think that the, the America First movement and the Trump presidency is the beginning of an American resurgence that, again, I, in my view, is going to last for decades. I think it's going to last for the rest, the rest of my life, certainly. Uh, and I sure hope the rest of my children's lives. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, can great. Can you speak to, you know, mandates and vaccine mandates? I know one of the big issues I've been involved in, you know, out of the veterans community is uh, the vaccine mandates yeah. imposed on service members. Uh, my, you know, little personal piece 
that I'm tied to is my, my family's served 82 years in the military, 12 combat deployments, 53 years to the Marine Corps. And on Monday, my youngest son is, is uh, that, that legacy ends with our youngest son being discharged for not getting the vaccine. Oh. Uh, and I, I know you have been really taking a stand against employer mandates. And um, can you speak a little bit about your position on vaccine mandates and sure. how dangerous that is to our country? Well, first, Chad, my, you know, apologies, right? And as an American, that that's happening to your family after all that your family has given to us. And that's, that's terrible that, uh, that it's your son who's being discharged. Yeah. My youngest son. And like Ugh. I said, it's, you know, with the Marine Corps, 53 years in the Marine Corps and that's how it ends. So wow. but that's, that's, you know, we represent the story of thousands right. of service members who are serving right now and being forced to be able to serve their country. No, it's outrageous. Listen, it's, uh, you know, it, it's most outrageous for people like your son, right? For people who are willing to fight and die for our country. But it's outrageous for anybody. It's outrageous for somebody who drives a bus. It's outrageous for any person in America to be in any way coerced or compelled to inject a brand new treatment into their body, particularly when, and, and I think this is critical, Chad, when there is no ethical argument to be made now that we know as a factual certainty that taking this, this uh, new treatment, even if it is effective, and I have lots of doubts about its efficacy, but let's put that aside for a moment. Let's pretend it is effective at lessening the effect of the virus for you. If we, were, if we are to assume that what Big Pharma tells us is true, fine. Let's put that on the table. They also, though, will now concede, finally, that it neither prevents you from acquiring nor from transmitting the virus. Therefore, there is no possible ethical or moral argument to be made why any person should be coerced into taking it because whether or not I take it has no bearing upon you whatsoever. None. Um, because again, even if I take it, I can still acquire it. I can still transmit it to you. So given that, you know, what's really happening in America right now is in my view, it's one of the most evil episodes in American history. I mean, I think in terms of you'd have to go to Jim Crow laws to find the last yeah, time right. that America subjugated people using the force of law in this way. You know, Jim Crow laws or perhaps Japanese internment, you know, or all mm -hmm. the way back to slavery. I mean, I think this what we're doing right now lines up with those sins, those great and grave sins of America's past. And how did the government do it in many ways? Well, it tied it to school and to employment. So it told children, children who, by the way, are, are statistically speaking not vulnerable to this virus, you know, praise God, right? They were right. spared uh, from right. this virus. And that's something that we should be celebrating. Instead, yeah. we seem to be particularly punishing children, which is just beyond, it, it certainly is illogical and unscientific. I think it's also We, we like to punish people who have no responsibility for what's happening. Yeah. That's, that's what we do. <laughs> that's yeah. what we do. Uh, and, and so we're using education and then we're using employment. And uh, the idea that anybody should have to choose between injecting themselves with something that they may not want or they may not need for whatever reason, by the way. And that reason is up to them. And whether or not I think it's a good reason or whether or not Fauci thinks a good reason is immaterial. Now, I, Steve Cortez, happen to think people have really good reasons to not take the vaccine. Right. I think healthy young people in particular, in my view, would be foolish to take it. But again, not for me to decide. That is for them to decide. For, for very young, for children, it's up to, to their parents to decide. Instead, we have Fauci and we have governors across America, people like Governor Newsom, my former governor, Governor Pritzker, which is one of the reasons I left Illinois. I was not going to deal with his mandates anymore, not for me, not for my children. I now live in, in Tennessee. I, I fled to a red state largely because of this issue. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's an incredible 
tragedy what's happening. I think also, though, and this is important for those of us who are involved in politics, it is an opening. I don't mean that in a crass way, but I'm saying it is an opening for us to assert uh, the principles of the America First movement. And part of those principles have to be the diffusion of power. I really believe strongly in that. The diffusion of power away from Washington, D.C., away from the federal government, certainly away from Big Pharma. And this connects back, by the way, to the economic issues I was talking about. What we have allowed in recent decades in this country, and the Republican Party is as guilty as the Dems on this, what we've allowed in this country is big business, and I would even argue really oligarchs now, to largely control our republic to the extent uh, to which, in some facets, we really don't have a republic right now. Now, I think we can save it. I think we can claw it back. Uh, but the clock is ticking on that. And right now, big tech and big pharma, and they often work hand in glove, they have such inordinate power right now in the United States that this must become, for America first, a key campaign issue of 2022. We need to break up and or regulate, I prefer just break up, but break up and or regulate big, t uh, big t uh, uh, tech. And on the big pharma side, those companies need to be reckoned with. I think what Pfizer in particular, and they're not alone, but what Pfizer has done most egregiously of, of the big pharma companies in uh, the last couple of years in this country uh, is, a, is a crime, quite frankly. And again, there needs to be a political reckoning. And, and regular folks alone, unfortunately, can't take on the oligarchs. We do, this yeah. is where we do need government. And this is where sort of classical laissez-faire, um, you know, quote, free market uh, um, politics just doesn't work anymore. It might have worked in the 1980s. It doesn't work now in the 2020s because we do need to use the power of the state to take on these oligarchs who are themselves right now as strong or stronger than the American government. The, uh, the media is a central piece of, you know, that discussion. I think a lot of people have gone one way or the other because of the media's portrayal of uh, whether it's mandates, lockdowns, vaccinations, whatever it is. You have a really unique position, I think, to view the media because you've been a part of kind of all of it. Right. <laughs> CNN, MSNBC, you've, you, you know these folks, you've been a part of what they're doing. From, from your perspective, I don't know the best way to ask the question, but from your perspective, having been a part of that, sure. uh, I look at a lot of these people as just evil. They're, they're not only carrying water for the Democratic Party, but they are trying to hurt Americans. I, I know in my heart that's probably not true of everyone. <laughs> Everyone, but it feels that way. Well, can you can you kind of more give us true than not, Jeremy? Yeah, no. Let, give, listen, give us an, let me give, give us you an my, insider's perspective. Sure. Like, who, who are these people, and why why do they care so much about spreading disinformation, or at least not giving a second voice to those who have a different opinion? Right. Now, Jeremy, unfortunately, my view from the inside is you are more right than wrong in your cynicism about that. <laughs> that's and not that's, encouraging, Steve. That's no, not it isn't. It isn't at all. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. But by the way, breaking up big tech, as I talked about, would do a lot to breaking up yeah, big media right. as well, right? Because then shows like yours uh, can't be deplatformed, get wider amplification. You know, we get, we get a way more competitive media sure. space if we solve the big tech equation. Sure. But to answer your question, no, and I do think I have a very unique... Uh, angle here and experience. I, I might be the only person out there who has been a, a paid broadcaster for all right. the four biggest cable <laughs> networks in America for, uh, right. for Fox, right. CNN, MSNBC, um, and Newsmax. Might have been fired by a couple of those organizations, but that, you know, we don't have to get into those <laughs> details. And uh, no, but in all honesty, so I've, I've, I've worked at, at all of them. Uh, I've seen them from the inside. And, and here's what I can, can tell you, unfortunately, you know, I think before Donald Trump, 
okay? Because I started working for them in 2008. I started working in television. Yeah, Before well. Donald Trump, I don't think that it was so much malicious that they truly had ill intent, most people, whether it's the producers off air or the, uh, the talent on air. I think that they were just... Uh, completely misled, and they were totally insulated from the truth and insulated mm. from regular Americans. They lived in bubbles of New York newsrooms um, and universities and, and sort of elite worlds where right. they were largely sheltered from the realities of the of the policies that they promulgated. And that's one of the things, by the way, it's one of the reasons that they hate Trump so much is that he came from their world, and yet, right. in their view, he betrayed right. them, right? right? Because right. he did identify with those working class people. He did see the angst and anxiety out there in the country, you know, and spoke yep. to it and provided solutions. So, but once Trump came along, I think things within media, my experience at least within media, things took a decidedly more uh, cynical and, and sinister really turn. And, and so I went to work after Trump won. It's sort of funny, be careful what you wish for, right? So Trump won. I first went back to Fox News. Relatively easy place to be uh, a Trump spokesman, right? To be a, a Trump uh, surrogate effectively paid by Fox and, and wonderful people there. Well, the president then, uh, and, and that was my job for 2017. In 2018 and 2019, for those years, um, as the battles were intensifying in Washington, D.C., as the media was coming after Trump, you know, with abandon at that point, it was really just a Russia obsession, yeah. which was just yeah. a complete hoax, of course. But yeah. in any case, Donald Trump uh, at the White House, uh, called me in and said, I need you to go to CNN. I said, oh, gosh, all right, <laughs> you know, I'll do it for you. And um, But he knew that I had so much experience in handling adversarial media. He let me sort of have my year of, of rest at Fox News uh, and then had me go into CNN. And I will tell you this, from my experience at CNN in 2018 and 2019, uh, you know, they knew that they were spreading misinformation. Uh, they were even worse off air than on air, believe it or not, in, in terms of their, uh, you know, their absolute antagonism and really more than antagonism, their hatred, quite frankly, of Donald Trump and the America First movement, their revulsion for our voters. It was really, it was something to behold. It was, uh, it was mentally at times a little tough really to deal with because, I mean, I saw such, yeah. um, such a neurosis almost, uh, such yeah. an obsession, but they had convinced themselves at that point. Once Trump actually won, which none of them thought was possible, once he actually won, and once he started to govern according to the campaign promises he made, sure. Sure. Um, they were so flummoxed that they really convinced themselves that they were fighting some noble battle against racism. And it almost always went back to race with them. Almost always, which, by the way, made me particularly problematic for them because this guy named right, Cortez, sure, who's the son sure. of an immigrant, I was a little harder for them to call a racist constantly. Right. But they really convinced themselves that they were on some, uh, some noble quest and this, that, that this noble quest would excuse um, ignoring the facts and would excuse spreading actual misinformation, which is a term, of course, that they use all the time, you know, totally inappropriately. Yeah. And, and so it became utterly antagonistic. They became the PR arm of the Democratic Party. You know, they remain that, of course, until this day. But so things were already problematic in the media world pre-Trump. Um, and then he just, you know, uh, put it into turbo drive, unfortunately. And, and to the point where I don't think these legacy platforms can ever be fixed. I mean, we'll see. Supposedly, for example, CNN's going to have a lot of house cleaning. They claim John Malone, who will effectively be running CNN, I think, in a matter of weeks, you know, once that takeover and, and uh, merger is, is effective. Uh, you know, supposedly he's going to clean house and try to make that a journalistic organization again. I, I wouldn't hold my <laughs> breath. Uh, but right. regardless, and I don't want to just talk CNN because, of course, it's way broader than that. It's, it's print media. It's everything. The legacy platforms are totally poisoned entities in this country. And again, part of, okay, we can't just complain about it. How do we fix it? Well, part right. of it is right. 
fixing the big tech piece because we can't allow, for example, I believe, listen, I believe, I believe that, uh, that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president. I think Donald Trump won the legal vote in 2020. But I think he would have massively won the legal vote had the, the truth been told to the American people in October of 2020 about the laptop from hell, about the entirety of the Biden cartel corruption. Yeah. And I don't mean just yeah. Hunter. I mean the relations to the, quote, big guy, to Joe Biden himself, how badly he was compromised by foreign governments, including the worst enemies of the United States, particularly yeah. the Chinese Communist Party. Had that story been fully known by the American people, had it not been shielded mm. by big media and big tech and shielded, unfortunately, pretty effectively, had it not been shielded from them, uh, then Donald Trump, I think, would have, I, I already believe he won, but I think he would have won by such a margin um, that no amount of cheating or malfeasance could have prevented him. And I think yeah. he'd be in the Oval Office yeah. right now. Yeah. You know, you talk about yeah. like hiding information like that, uh, misinformation, uh, big tech censorship. We. We've all, anybody that has a conservative voice, I've been censored quite a bit. I look back, or just look back recently, uh, all my posts that have been removed were related to COVID and, uh, and election integrity, specifically not just censored, but pulled off my platform. Right. Uh, and I know you've experienced it as well. And, and now we got guys like Joe Rogan, right, who uh, originally it was COVID and now it's racism. Who is, is there a central entity that's pushing this narrative that's driving to tax on someone like Joe Rogan, right? Uh, there's, is there an orchestrator of this movement? It, I mean, it seems so uncoincidental to me that all the different big platforms have the same strategy, all mm. the major news, right. networks, mainstream news networks have the same strategy, the same narratives. Is there an orchestrator of all this that's pushing this agenda? No, listen, it, it's a key question, and I'll, I'll be very upfront with you. I don't know for sure. I certainly have my theories, which I'm happy to, you know, to quickly get into here. But first, just one quick point, because I think this is fascinating, Chad. The, the exact kinds of things that you probably had uh, censored you know, on social media and that a lot of people got either uh, temporarily or permanently removed from platforms for, those same, uh, those, those same facts about the virus, about the vaccine, they are now literally being uttered uh, by people in the name of the CDC, you know, uh, you know, people like Leanna Wen, right, who is the medical expert for CNN, is now saying things which if, he, if she had said them just weeks ago, right, she, right. she would have been suspended. I mean, they may not have suspended her just because of their bias, but at least they would certainly suspend regular yeah. people for saying these things. So it's, it's fascinating how quickly the, the so-called science changed once the political science changed <laughs> against uh, because, you know, the lockdowns were just so onerous, even in blue jurisdictions, the, the restrictions were so unpopular uh, that the, the, the quote science changed. But to answer your bigger question about because, listen, it does seem um, that the coordination, right, and the timing of the repression of information and the repression of people and voices and institutions um, is so uh, it's, it's hard to believe that it's just coincidental. Right. Um, and so that gives rise to, well, then who is orchestrating or, you know, what yep. person or groups are actually directing traffic, you know, as it were. Um, and the, again, the honest answer is I really don't know, but I will tell you this. I don't know that it's so much like, for instance, I used to say this about uh, cable news, which is really kind of my area of real expertise uh, as far as media goes. And there's not a morning conference call. I mean, CNN does not get on the phone with MS, with the New York Times, with the LA Times. You know, they, they don't get on a giant conference call um, and decide things. They all basically have the exact same worldview, the exact same mission, um, and they just take cues from each other in an open way. In other words, not in a secretive mm -hmm. way. For, and yeah. let me be concrete with that, what I mean. For example, 
Uh, I actually, most mornings, believe it or not, I watch Morning Joe, and I hate it, okay? And it's, you know, <laughs> there's not, there's, there are a few things that I would like to watch less than Morning Joe, but the reason I watch Morning Joe is, uh, and I can't watch all three hours, it's just too much, but at least get a sampling of it, is I find that they largely write the script for cable TV for that day. They largely do. And what, you know, wherever they focus, uh, whatever narrative they push. Now, are they coming up with the narrative themselves? Are they getting it from George Soros? Are they getting it from the DNC? That I just I don't know. I really don't know. I'm, uh, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist in general because I just think it, it defies human nature and people talk. And I think we, you know, we would know if there was something more orchestrated going on. I really think it's more that the ruling class in the United States, and for that matter, the ruling class in the world, because they are far more aligned with each other than any of them are with their countrymen. You know, and what I mean by that is um, the ruling class uh, elites in the United States. They have far more in common with their Davos pals in Paris, France, mm. than they do with their own countrymen in Paris, Texas. And I think that's a reality that we have to just acknowledge. Yeah. Their interests are aligned, though, is my point. And because their interests are aligned, I don't think they necessarily uh, need to conspire together to pursue largely the same tactics headed for the same goals. You know, so what, what are those kinds of goals? Well, things like open borders, right, because they want... Uh, a cheap flow of labor to be, you know, continually into the United States, and not just that, but ultimately uh, to try to to try to change the U.S. politically in a way that they can't do through simply a war of ideas and through simply persuading people. If you can't convince the electorate, well, let's try to just replace the electorate. So the, for, that's an example of open borders where, for them, they get a two-four uh, because these giant corporations, the multinationals, get the cheap labor they want. Uh, that the liberal politicians get the, the voters that, that, that they want, or at least that they think will, will be their voters. You know, given what's going on with Hispanics, by the way, I'm not so sure that one's going to work out as planned for mm -hmm. them. But regardless, that is their intention. I wanted to take a minute to let our audience know about the work that we do through an incredible veterans nonprofit called the Mighty Oaks Foundation. Many of our nation's warriors struggle with the hardships of military service and reintegration back into civilian life. Often they leave broken homes in their aftermath and comprise one of the most at-risk groups for suicide, with over 20 veterans who take their lives every single day. Mighty Oaks tackles this critical issue with our faith-based peer-to-peer resiliency and recovery programs offered at no cost to our honored servicemen and women at beautiful ranches across the United States. Mighty Oaks has one of the highest success rates of any program available anywhere. Visit MightyOaksPrograms.org. To learn more about how you can make a direct impact in the lives of our servicemen and women to help them find a new life purpose through hope in Christ. Again, that's MightyOaksPrograms.org. Witnessing the transformation that these men and women go through is absolutely incredible. There are no words to describe seeing warriors restored to the lives they were created to live, changing their legacies for eternity. Your support is needed now more than ever and will ensure that our programs are here for our warriors who are in desperate need. Again, the website is MightyOaksPrograms.org. Um, let's, uh, and maybe we can kind of end on this note because I think action steps are really helpful. You have stood up for principally what you believe. You've paid a price for that in a lot of areas. You've lost jobs because of that. And even in, in the conservative world, some people have pushed back on your opinions about vaccines, for instance, and, and some of these mandates. What can, can normal people, people who are listening, who they resonate with the hopeful view of America, we have a future, we're going to make it, but then they've heard everything else for the last 25 minutes. There's a lot of difficulty. There's a lot to overcome. Sure. 
institutional Republicans may not be the same as the rest of us. We need to see a, a C, C state change there. What can normal people do to stand up and really contribute to the, the turning of the tide on this thing? Yeah, listen, I'm glad you asked because I think this is so key, right? I mean, all of us need to be informed. Uh, all of us need to be outraged, right? It's important to be outraged, but it can't end there, right? We can't just curse the darkness, right? How do we right. light the candle? Sure. Sure. Uh, and this is so key. And let me be really concrete about this because I, I, I think this is so important. Uh, first of all, people need to get politically involved, including volunteering for office. And I don't mean that that doesn't mean that you have to you have to leave your job and run for office. It means things like running for school board. I think that is critical. Yeah. Right. And this yeah. is starting to happen. There's a groundswell that's starting, but we need to accelerate it. It needs to get even bigger. Anyone can run from school board, right? You don't need any educational experience. You don't need advanced education yourself. Um, if you are a person of principles, if you're a person of common sense, if you're a person who mm. wants to loves this country and wants to learn more about this country, run for your local school board. That would be an example. Another thing that's not quite, that puts yourself out there a bit, though, which I understand some people don't want to do. Um, a way to not put yourself out there quite as much, but still be important in the process, um, is to become a, a precinct captain. Uh, and to become, there are literally mm. thousands of of GOP positions around the country um, that are that are volunteer. In most cases, there really is no election because whoever raises their hand gets it, right? So to become a committeeman, a precinct captain, yeah. um, and particularly in non-Republican areas of the country, by the way, it's even more important there, but it's important all over the place. My good friend, Steve Bannon, who I do a lot of uh, yep. TV with, a lot of his show, War Room, he has been so successful at persuading Americans to go out there in this uh, precinct project, as he calls it, to get involved. And, and here, let me give you a real-world result of where that, in my view, has already paid dividends. Uh, the, the triumph of Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, yep. who I think yep. so far is governing. I was a little worried about him because I was a little worried that he was an establishment Wall Street Republican. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so far, I think he's governing absolutely. He came like out of the American gate person. just firing on all cylinders. I mean, he's going crazy. Yeah. Right now. So yeah. he's been a, he's been magnificent in my view so far. But how yeah. did he get elected in a pretty blue state? OK, of Virginia, a place where, let's face it, Donald Trump wasn't even close. Yeah. Uh, and he ran on an America first agenda. It's not like he ran on some squish agenda. I believe the main reason that he got elected is because in terms of poll watchers and election judges, okay, and those are the other two things I, I was going to get to, poll watchers and election judges, which are volunteer positions. Well, I think actually the judges maybe paid something nominal, but, you know, basically volunteer positions. Right. Uh, on the Republican side, 95% of those slots in the Commonwealth of Virginia on election day were filled by the good citizens, by the deplorables mm. of the Commonwealth of Virginia. The, the election before in 2020, right. when I think we had the election stolen from us, 30% was filled. So when you go from 30% to 95%, when you have boots on the ground, when you have yeah. eyes on the process, when you're <laughs> in the counting room, things change pretty dramatically. Sure. Regular Americans can do that. You don't have to leave your job. You don't have to run for school board, although I want to encourage people to do that. But if you don't want to put yourself out there in that regard, at least become... Um, a, an election day volunteer, uh, a poll watcher, an election uh, judge. Those things are so significant. And that may be the difference in a lot of areas come November 2022 and 2024. That's awesome. Steve, thank you so much. Uh, where can people follow you, follow the work that you're doing, and uh, just keep up with, with what's uh, going on in your world? You bet. Hey, Jeremy Chad, I so appreciate you having me. Uh, please follow me on social media. I'm at Getter right now, where I'm very simple. I'm just Steve. I actually was early enough that I got that name. <laughs> nice. so I'm Steve on Getter. Nice. And then over on Twitter, at least until they kick me off, I'm at Cortez Steve, Cortez with an S, over on Twitter. Yeah. Where, where, where can people watch you right now? What, what are you, what's your main platform that you're... 
you know, for, for right now, it's those social media platforms, but I, I will be having announcements very soon, uh, some, some cool things percolating. So, yeah, thank you for asking. I'll be back on that. Well, when you do, we'll, uh, we'll push that out as well. But, uh, yeah, thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for your voice, and thanks for coming on with us. Thank you both. Very grateful for Steve taking some time to break this down for us. Uh, he's one of those guys, that, as you listen to him, you have a hundred other questions that you'd like to ask. And if we had a four-hour-long podcast, uh, we could keep shooting questions at him. I appreciate his perspective, not only because he's articulate and clear, but because he has life experience. He's lived through so much of this already. He has experience with the organizations and institutions we've talked about. And uh, just so appreciate him coming on with us. And I hope that was a help to you as well. If you have not yet, I would encourage you go over to Salem Media. That's where this podcast can be found. Maybe you're listening on a podcast platform. Hopefully you're subscribed there. But go over to Salem Media, salempodcastnetwork.com, salempodcastnetwork.com. You can find this show, archived episodes of this show. You can also find the video of this show if you haven't watched that yet. And other wonderful podcasts, great uh, host there as well. I'd encourage you to go check that out, and that would be fantastic. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next time. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.